Fall is in the air, so it's time to add trending autumn hair color hues. Whether it's a chestnut brown, honey blonde balage, or warm copper highlight you want, we can create the look you're dreaming of at the Infinity Salon at the Market on State. For a limited time, try one of our Goldwell Color Locking Serums for only $5 with another service. That's a $20 value. You can book online or call to make an appointment. The Infinity Salon. To infinity and beyond! Your expectations. The leaves are falling and so are the prices. At the Rocky Outdoor Gear Store, hiking, hunting, tailgating, and camping, whatever your favorite fall activity entails, Rocky has what you need to gear up. Three floors of footwear, apparel, equipment, and decor. You're sure to find something for everyone in the family. While you're there, grab a bite to eat at the Rustic Boot Grill. The Rocky Outdoor Gear Store, Route 33, Nelsonville. Stop by and enjoy the wonderful atmosphere of the expanded Bunch of Grapes Tavern and Cutler's Restaurant at the Ohio University Inn. Enjoy weekly specials like Prime Rib Sundays, Martini Mondays, Italian Tuesdays, and Wine Down Wednesdays. In addition to award-winning dining, the Ohio University Inn offers rooms with amenities such as free Wi-Fi, pet-friendly rooms, and a 24-hour fitness center. Come visit the Gateway to Ohio University, the Ohio University Inn, located at 331 Richland Avenue in Athens. Alpine Heating and Cooling is a local, veteran-owned HVAC contractor providing you comfort with their best guaranteed prices, 24-7 emergency service, 10-year warranties on new systems, and free estimates. Alpine, with a Y, uses quality products from top brands like Ream and LG. Call them at 740-591-2777 or email bill at alpinehvac.com. Alpine Heating and Cooling, helping you stay cool and drop it like it's hot. When the pimp's in the crib, ma, drop it like it's hot, drop it like it's hot. AM 970 and 97.1 FM. Well, once again, a, a hiccup, right? All this new system we're putting in and so many others on the staff know it better, so, so much better than I do. Hey, we got a special edition today. Rebecca Snell joins us. She's a professor at Ohio University's Department of Environmental and Plant Biology. And the thing we're particularly concerned about is climate change. We've heard people talk about it for, what, particularly the last 10 or 15 years. But it's been a topic longer than that, of course. 
And um, so that's that's what's going on, folks. And um, Rebecca, good morning. Good morning. Welcome. And um, let's see here. We'll we'll do our very best here to um, to explain what what uh, you're concerned about, and many others too, of course, about the world. Really, this isn't just a national thing. This is a worldwide concern, right? Absolutely. Sure. Well, Rebecca, tell me about your background. How long have you been in Athens? So I moved to Athens in the summer of 2016, so just over about three and a half years now. How does it suit you? Oh, I really love it. Yeah? Um, yeah, I'm very, we're very happy here in Athens. And, and you said we. Yes, so okay. I moved here with my husband, and I have two kids. And, well, how cool is that? In their ages? I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. Okay, so I know how that is. I've got <laughs> some grandkids in that zone for sure. So, um, and, and uh, now, we, well, you're a professor of biology and that sort of thing. Now, what what, is, what occupies your husband's time? He's an electrician. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh huh. So he's very useful. Good. Um, and you know, it's amazing how these new light bulbs that are coming out don't always favor uh, the switches and dimmers and things like uh, your home has. You know. <laughs> I, I may need to ask him for a little bit of help. Sure. But um, anyway, um, talk about um, growing up. Where where were you raised? So I was raised um, just outside of uh, Toronto in Canada. It's a place called Mississauga. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I've you've heard ever, yeah, if you've ever flown into Toronto, you actually the airport for Toronto's in Mississauga. So it's just outside Toronto, um, in sort of southern Ontario. Now, um, I guess I often ask about your parents' backgrounds. What, what, because it, you know, those tend to shape also their children. Right. So my father um, has a PhD in physics, and so he worked for. Um, it's a company in Canada that they do. They make uh, nuclear energy uh, reactors. Mm-hmm. And my mother for, for the produce if, to produce electricity to produce electricity. Yeah. Yes. So good. it's Atomic Energy of Canada. Sure. Um, and my mother had a master's degree in math and another master's degree in, um, I think it's anthropology. Um, and then she actually stayed at home um, and was a stay-at-home mom with us and my sisters for um, a long time. And when the first year I went to university, she basically went back to work. And she um, opened up a knitting and a quilting store. And then she oh. had that for about 20 years. Mathematics, knitting, <laughs> yep. that makes perfect sense. And quilting. Quilting is a lot of math. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, how, you said your sisters, plural, yes. right? Yes. So how many in the family? So I have two sisters. There so there's three go. girls. And how did you rank amongst them in I'm, terms of age? I'm the middle one. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, you know, th- th- what is obvious, though, is that education was uh, important to uh, your parents, they, per, you know, pursued it and and accomplished it. And, and was that reflected in all three of the, the girls? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they always had an expectation that we would all go to university. Um, they weren't, they didn't care as much about what we studied when we went to university. But the fact is, the expectation was we would all go to college or university to get an education. Um, and so my oldest sister took um, interior design. Yeah. My, and that's my wife's background. Yeah. And then I went in for um, basically biology and computer science. And my youngest sister did biology and psychology. 
Now, have they all progressed to uh, to holding PhDs, such as yourself? No. Okay. So I was the only one who went on to do graduate work. I see. Well, here you are in Athens. Mm-hmm. What what previous assignments have you had? Right. So before I was in Athens, I was actually living in Switzerland. So I was doing a postdoc in Switzerland for I was there for about three and a half years, um, living in Zurich, um, and working in a group. Um, that did forest ecology and modeling and climate change, and so a lot of what I do here as well. Sort of now, similar. your family uh, was there as well? Yeah, my family was there as well with me. Um, so when we were living in Switzerland, my husband actually was a stay-at-home dad um, for three years because childcare in Switzerland was just so expensive. Yes. Um, so we moved there, and my son was two years old. So my husband became the stay-at-home dad, and then my daughter was actually born in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Switzerland, you know, a lot of us um, hear so much about it. And um, uh, was it a, was there anything startling about it? Um, so one of the, I mean, I, they have a very high quality of life. So living in Switzerland really is um, is really special. It's it's a really nice sort of quality of life. One of the things I loved so much was that their public transportation is just outstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were there for three and a half years and never owned a car and never felt like we needed to own a car. We could get anywhere in Switzerland on buses and trains. Um, and so they have trains going and buses basically going up the mountains. So if you want to go hiking on the weekend, that's easy to do. And without a car, you just basically catch a local train Um, It'll take you out to the mountains, you take another bus, and it takes you right up to the top. Um, And it's not just that they have really excellent connections throughout the country, but it's also frequent. So the buses and trains are coming once every half an hour. So it also feels like it's not a burden to wait for the bus Mm -hmm. or to wait for a train. So in Canada, we have trains, obviously, as well. and, um, And so I used to take the train between Kingston and Toronto when I was doing my undergraduate degree and the train only came at certain times so it was certainly not every half an hour and so you're like well I missed the four o'clock train now I'm waiting till seven o'clock p.m. right right and so it it makes it feel more like a burden to take public transportation but in Switzerland because things are coming every 30 minutes it really or less it really feels very easy sure. so that was definitely something that I really appreciated from living there well the the experience um you know we haven't really clobbered the topic yet at all and that is climate change mm-hmm. this this is something you're keenly concerned in it's what your research is focused on that sort of thing and particularly as it affects plants mm-hmm. now um vegetation that is um <coughs> Climate change, we've heard so much about it. And, you know, some some countries seem to be concerned about it and want to act responsibly. Others just, you know, damn the rumors full speed ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, Switzerland, what was their position? Um. That's interesting. I think they were pretty keen on on making changes. Um, they definitely were were very open to the discussion, and it, there was there was none of this climate change denial 
happening. So mm. it wasn't about, no, no, it's not happening. Um, but Switzerland's also in a position of being a fairly wealthy country and having a relatively small population um, compared to, obviously, the United States or other countries. So I think they were also in a position to be able to make a change um, and, and to be in a position of having the wealth to do that. So a lot of these climate change, um, like to sort of mitigate climate change and things we need to do, are going to cost money. And so you have to be in a position of saying, I'm willing to spend the money, um, and I have the money to spend. Now, when I look farther back on your background, you you had a, a number of years where you were involved in, well, we'll just say computer programming. Yes. Um, and, and at several different sites. And so how did you, what, what, Where'd you turn the corner, and, and why into this yeah. this biology and um, climate change and all this sort of thing? Right. So, um, I actually was always interested in biology, and in that I I liked plants, I liked growing plants, and mo- both of my parents um, love are avid bird watchers, and so a lot of our childhood was spent hiking in the forests and and looking for birds. Um, so I always enjoyed biology, and computer programming was just something I started in high school. We had a computer programming class, mm-hmm. um, and it was just a lot of fun. Like, computer programming is actually a lot of fun, and it was my highest grade um, in high school. And so when I went to university, um, I just basically kept it up. So I did biology courses because that was interesting to me, and I did computer programming courses because I, I enjoyed them. They were a lot of fun. Um, and when I was taking my undergraduate degree, the link between biology and computer programming wasn't as obvious as it is now, I think. Um, so a lot of people asked me, <coughs> you know, what are, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. Right, um, right. And so a lot of my jobs were like computer programming simply for computer programming. I was hired as a programmer. Um, and then when I did my master's degree, I chose a, prog- um, a topic that was entirely biology. So there was no computer programming in my master's degree at all. Um, in my master's degree, we can talk about that if you're interested, but it was what my supervisor at the time called hobby science. Hobby science. Yes, which is science for science's sake. It was going out and watching plants and pollinators and just just sort of really, you know, it's a lot of natural history. It was really fun. It, it and sounded <laughs> a little bit like your... Um your advisor didn't particularly agree with it. Though. He loved it. No, no, he thought it was fun. Okay. But it was it was about a very specific plant pollinator interaction, um, yuccas and yucca moths. Um, oh, wait a minute. So, what is a yucca yeah. and a yucca mop? moth? Moth. Moth. So, the yucca it's a plant that grows um, out west, um, and it's a desert. Oh, the yucca. The plant. yucca plant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it looks kind of like an agave or something, mm-hmm. but it's its own genus. And they make these beautiful white flowers. And it's unique in ecology in that it's um, one of about three that we know of obligate mutualisms. So what that means is the relationship between the yucca and its pollinator, which is a yucca moth, has to happen. So it's obligate. So they both need each other. So most pollination is sort of, it. you know, it happens, it's nice, but if, if the bumblebee doesn't arrive to the flower, the bumblebee doesn't die. Um, Whereas a yucca and a yucca moth, they actually literally need each other. So what happens is the the moth emerges at the same time that the yuccas are flowering. And then the yucca flowers, there's no accidental pollination. 
So if a bee enters into the yucca flower, it's not going to get pollinated. So what happens is the yucca moth actually climbs up um, the anther and collects the pollen. So it actually has a special spot under its head to store and collect pollen. <laughs> so it collects the pollen and then it flies to another yucca plant and then it climbs on top of the style and takes all the pollen and with its front legs, it actually pounds the pollen into the stigma. <laughs> so it's active pollination. So it's not passive. It's not like I just happened to grab some pollen on my body and I flew to another flower and I accidentally brushed some off. Like this is very active pollination. And people have done experiments with yuccas. And if you just brush the pollen on top of the stigma, doesn't work. it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. So there is no accidental pollination. So it absolutely needs the yucca moth to pollinate the flower. And why the yucca moth does it is because as soon as it's pollinated the flower, it goes down and it lays its eggs inside the ovary. And so as the, the ovaries turn into the fruit, their eggs hatch and the larvae eat some of the yucca seeds. So the larvae spend their whole time inside a yucca fruit eating the seeds. And then once the yucca fruits mature, the, egg, the larvae hop out, they emerge, and then they go into the ground and they overwinter. And the, yar the, sorry, the larvae eat about 30% of the seeds. Mm. So the yucca plant is sort of gives up 30% of the seeds for the 70% that don't get eaten. And without the pollination, um, so if the flower doesn't get pollinated, then the plant will abort the flower. So, so there's sort of this mutualism that has to happen for, for, in order to have both yucca moths and yucca fruit and flower and plants. So now it, this is, I don't mean to be hurtful. Why is the yucca important? Yes. And that is the exact question <laughs> that basically made me choose a different topic for my PhD. <laughs> so, okay. and this is why we sort of joked and called it like hobby science and that it was fun and it was interesting and we enjoyed it so much. And it's great to learn about these relationships. Um, because it's an extreme of pollination and an extreme of mutualism and how could we possibly get here. So there's interesting questions for evolution. Um, and in these desert-type habitats, yuccas are actually quite important as, um, as a, a component of like the plant community. Um, but people always ask me that question. So who... People always ask me, why <coughs> is this important? Why... Uh, so tell I, me is what, is, what is reliant on yucca? Is it a particular animal? Is it, um, I mean, is it a food source for some animals? What, you know, what is its purpose? Yeah, so the, the plant itself is quite spiky, so I don't think anything eats the plant. Okay. However, the flowering stalks, when they come up in the spring, um, they're called asparagus shoots because that's what they look like. And those get eaten a lot by, um, by mammals and things like that. Sure. Um, but have, you, have you ever tried one yourself? No, I haven't. But you know okay. what? People also eat yucca roots. So the root can be quite fleshy, and uh -huh. so people will eat, eat the root. But I think the challenge with the question of why it's important, it comes back to why is it important to me, like to a human, right? And I had a hard time answering why yuccas and yucca moths are important to humans, besides an appreciation for, for nature and sort of a fascination with the fact that these, um, these relationships and these obligate mutualisms exist. So that's why for my PhD, I thought, I want to do something that is important to humans, that 
that comes back to why is this important to to my parents and to my friends and and the community and that was one of the reasons why I chose climate change to sort of switch topics to think uh-huh. about what's happening now and what's important to us right now and so what could I do that would actually make a difference so really the climate change came um came about later on that that yeah. interest yeah definitely so that was and that was in between my master's and my phd when i really thought about well you know my and the master's was i hate to disparage it it was a lot of fun and i enjoyed it a lot um but it was that question of why is this important that i sort of struggled with well so climate change mercy mm-hmm. we hear so much about it and, you know, I don't know if they're being uh, overly cautious or if they're um, behind, the, behind the curve on dealing with it or, or just what. Uh, do you have a general opinion at this point? Do you think that we as society, and I mean the world, are seriously dealing with it? That's a hard one. I think I think the concern is there. I do think people are seriously concerned about it, especially the younger generation seems to have taken this quite to heart. And I agree, because they're the ones who are going to actually deal with the most severe consequences of this. Um, are we doing enough? Probably not. Um, it's a hard... I mean, I sympathize in that, you know, it's not next year. It's not like next year the world's going to explode. Right. It's we're looking sort of, you know, 50 to 100 years down the road um, as some of the more severe consequences that sort of happening in 50 years from now. So it's hard to start making fundamental changes in our society and the way that we operate in anticipation of what's going to happen in 20 or 30 or 40 years. Um, I do think we need to happen. And I talk to my kids a lot about this. And I think having kids is a great (laughs) motivation (laughs) to change because. My son, who's nine, knows that I study climate change. And we were talking about it once, and he looks at me, and he goes, well, then why are we driving a gas car? He's like, this is contributing. And I was like, you're right, this is. And so, I mean, we are looking at buying electric or hybrid as our next vehicle um, to certainly minimize that. But it is, but there's you know, the it is generation this, it's the next the generation. And I did tell him, I think his generation... I think they're going to look back at gas-powered vehicles as like, oh my gosh, do you remember when everyone drove a gas car? Mm. I think by the time he's in his 30s or 40s, like, I think they're going to look back and be I remember Mm. my parents had a gas car, and now nobody does. Mm. So I do think it, but it's it's slow to change. The, um, yeah, well, you know, on the other hand, the electricity to charge the car, yeah. you know, the processes that go into generation, yeah. uh, they too uh, add to this climate change um, fear and concern. Absolutely. So it's not just about switching to electric vehicles. It's also making sure that the electricity we're generating is coming from renewable sources. So it doesn't make any sense to switch to electric and have all of your electricity coming from coal-fired plants. I have um, periodically talked on this show. I've only been doing this show forty years, but um, you know, I have I have been in um, nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. 
uh, toward them. I've been in coal-fired plants and some that were considered environmentally friendly. They had cleaners and, you know, all that stuff, Mm -hmm. scrubbers, uh, and some that didn't. Um, They're all doing an important purpose, but, you know, there seems to be this great fear and uh, what was it in in uh, Russia? The, um, Chernobyl. Thank you, Chernobyl, and and there's been some other incidents of lesser degree that where a nuclear power plant has experienced a problem and it's uh, damaged a, a neighborhood or whatever the environment too. Mm-hmm. Now, um, my my. I go around and I see that every single nuclear power plant is of its own design. And I it's just common sense tells me if you adopted if you all the engineers went together and came up with a singular good design and then you could stock enough spare parts for to go anywhere to repair anything rather than all this customization of each plant. I, I think everything would be so much safer, you know. But anyway, so let's see here. I, I brought in a little list of, of climate change, 11 facts you need to know. Okay. okay. So number one, 408 parts per million. That's the concentration of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere as of last year. Mm-hmm. It is the highest it has been in three million Years. Yep. Carbon dioxide. So when you and I breathe, mm-hmm. we expel carbon dioxide. Yes. We take in oxygen, not pure oxygen, but what oxygen is there is changed to carbon dioxide and exhaled. Mm-hmm. Okay. Plants like carbon dioxide, right? Yes. So there's a mutual thing there. We take in oxygen, we expel carbon dioxide. Plants take in carbon dioxide, they expel oxygen. Yep. Great balance, right? Yep. Should there be a concern yet? <laughs> concern about what? Climate change. Well, yeah. So, I mean, the this is true. Definitely plants are taking in carbon dioxide. The challenge is we're emitting... So, it's not us breathing emitting carbon dioxide that's the challenge the challenge is that we're digging into the earth and burning fossil fuels and these are carbon this is carbon that was basically taken up by plants millions and millions of years ago sequestered into their plant bodies and then turned you know decomposed and turned into coal and gas and oil but it stayed underground so that was where all that carbon was locked up mm-hmm. and so when we burn fossil fuels we're pulling carbon that basically has been locked into our Earth um, for millions of years, and we're basically putting it back into the atmosphere, right? So we're undoing millions and millions of years of carbon sequestration from plants. So we are upsetting the balance? Absolutely. Okay. And so there's also this discussion of potentially that plants can just... I mean, and certainly plants can help in that they can absorb some carbon. And so there's lots of places in the world where we have cut down forests. And so places that we've cut down forests 
if we allowed the forest to regrow or stopped cutting down forests, those plants could take up some of that carbon. But it's not the only thing. We need to do more than just stop cutting forests and replant and reforest basically areas that were historically forest. You know, this is this just occurred to me. I don't know even if it's a cool question or not. Are there some plants that are more capable of turning carbon into oxygen than others? Like, what if we suddenly said, okay, this plant is really good for this purpose. So we had certain designated growing areas for it. Is that nuts? There's... So... (laughs) (laughs) there's some plants that grow faster like that you know put on biomass quicker than others so potentially that you know we could basically plant things that grow quickly Mm -hmm. um but it's actually not carbon that's limiting a lot of plant growth and so the challenge with so there's an effect called co2 fertilization which is this idea that with more carbon in the atmosphere you know plants should be growing faster and thriving and, and thriving And some of them are. Some of them are certainly growing faster. But for a lot of plants, they're now limited by minerals and nutrients. So it's not carbon that's limiting them. It's things like nitrogen or phosphorus that are preventing them from sort of exploding and growing so much. And then the other challenge, too, is... um, So all plants basically have a fundamental challenge where they need to basically get carbon into their uh, leaves... So they have to open what are called stomata. So these are little pores in the leaf, and they can open and close them. So they have to open them to get carbon and release oxygen for a gas exchange. But every time they open them, they lose water, and they don't want to lose water. So they sort of regulate their stomata so that they open to get to for gas exchange, but then they'll close them if they have enough to retain their water. And so what's happening for... Um, a lot of plants with increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it means they actually don't have to open up their stomata as much. So they're becoming more water use efficient. So we're not seeing this big increase in growth. All we're seeing is that they're holding onto their water more. So every time they open up their stomata, they get enough carbon in a shorter amount of time so they can open their stomata less. So we're basically not seeing that huge you know, sort of plant increase that, you know, you might think if we do this, like, CO2 fertilization effect. Well, let's move on to another climate change angle. Um, According to a report I pulled up, uh, 2016, just three years ago, was the warmest year on record, and they're talking about internationally. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, NASA and NOAA, that's uh, the Atmospheric Administration, um, data show that the global averages in 2016 were 1.78 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than the mid-20th century average. Mm -hmm. 17 of the 18 warmest years have occurred just since 2000, and certainly we've all mentioned how warm it was, at least in our region, this summer. Yep. Unusually warm. So that's just sort of a fact. Um, then, number three, it says 11% of emissions, 11% of all global greenhouse gas emissions 
caused by humans are caused by deforestation. Mm-hmm. This is this is ties right into your particular interest. Yep. Comparable to the emissions from all the cars and trucks on the planet. So just by development, you might say, people doing away with woods mm-hmm. or even um, you know urb uh, not urban areas, but um, Populated areas changing from lots of greenery to relatively little and concrete and all of that sort of thing. Um, you know, we're creating. I'm sorry, we're the emissions are being treated less effectively and therefore becoming. Help me, babe. I need your help. Okay. <laughs> you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, you're getting at the idea that it's. The carbon emissions are coming... I'm sorry, I said, babe, that was so informal and stupid. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so it's um, that we have an impact basically with with emissions in cars, but also with deforestation and development. And so we definitely could make a difference um, by stopping deforestation. Um, And this is a global phenomenon. So, you know, deforestation is happening all over the world in terms of development um, and clearing land to then pasture cows um, and the cattle, and this is a big issue in the tropics, um, that they'll clear a lot of the rainforest and then turn it into a pasture. And so that process basically also emits a lot of carbon. Now, here's another thing. It says the Amazon is a carbon-storing powerhouse. Yes. In the Amazon, 1% of the tree species sequester 50% of the region's carbon. Have you visited the uh, Amazon? Um, yeah, many years ago, actually, but before I actually started my PhD, mm-hmm. um, I went to Brazil um, on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and this was before I actually, this was after my undergraduate degree. Um, so I went to the Amazon, but it was a vacation and it was a lot of fun. Um, but it was not in any... Well, yeah. at the time, I've been there twice. Um and both times were uh, associated with other responsibilities. But the point is, when you see the forests that accompany the Amazon, and now we're hearing how, just with a, a wave of the hand, many of these are being eliminated. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's alarming. It is. It's alarming, and it's very sad. Um and the challenge, too, with a lot of these forests is that once, I mean, not to say that we can't reforest, but there's no guarantee that what we're going to get back will be the same as what we lost. Um, so there's a real value in protecting what we have, as opposed to saying, we'll cut it now, but we'll replant it in 10 years. Um, you're, you're potentially going to get quite a different forest back. Now I'm a statistics guy, and somewhere in my my memory bank, there's three billion people living in the world. Mm-hmm. Here's another factoid: it says 800 million people. Well, here they call it 11 percent of the world's population. So that three billion's got to be wrong. Well, anyway, 11 percent of the world's population is currently vulnerable. To climate change. Yep. Impacts such as droughts, 
floods, heat waves, extreme weather events, and sea level rise. Yep. Um, now you're you're you know biological sciences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but some of these things are out of the hands of just biological science. Oh, absolutely. And this, I mean, when you hear numbers like that, and it, you know, there are a lot of island nations that are really at threat of losing their islands. Um, and any country that has a coastline is under threat of, like you say, sort of increased flooding, loss of coastline. Um, and not every country is going to have the ability to migrate people inland. And so, I mean, these are big issues um, that governments need to deal with about what happens to people who get displaced due to climate change. Um, and I mean, I don't have an answer to that, and that certainly is not... Right. <laughs> my area, but abs- I think it's. I think that's very serious, and I think that's something that um, needs to be addressed <clears throat> and needs attention. Um, and even in the USA, people who live along coasts um, need to really consider if that's something that's going to be viable for the next ten or fifteen years. And there is, like, I mean, after um, Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, um, they're not rebuilding parts of New Orleans. They're just, you know, they sort of, you know, there's certain parts that were just it's not it's not possible to live there anymore. It's just going to be increasing numbers of floods, and it's just it doesn't make sense to to rebuild right on the coast. You have successfully um, been um, compensated to do various forms of research, lots of grants and and while none of them were huge, they all add up and out of this, what what is what is it that you would like to see happen? Like in terms of like forests or, I or I, like I'm o- going to let you th- tell me what you think the impact of your studies should have. I see. Um, so most of what I study is with forestry, and so forestry is kind of like climate change in that. We have to make decisions now in order to see an effect in 30 or 40 or 50 years. So forestry is something that you have to decide now. I'm going to either cut something, I'm going to plant something, I'm going to do something to my forest now with the idea that in 30 or 40 years it'll have made a difference. Trees don't grow in a year. No. And so I think forestry and climate change go together in that way. It's the same with climate change. We have to decide to do something now to see an effect in 30 years or 50 years. Um, so what I'd like to see from my, what I do is is a, a more conscious effort to manage our forests for climate change. Um, so forestry, we sort of do often this sort of like business as usual. Mm-hmm. We've always done these things, you know, let's keep doing white pine plantations because they work well, so we're just going to keep planting those. Um, but I think we could actually do a lot to our forests um, to anticipate what's going to happen. So to look a little bit further ahead and say, in this region, these sorts of species are going to do better. So let's start planting them. These other species are going to be very vulnerable to basically increases in drought or increases in pests or pathogens that are coming. So let's not, you know, either we've got to um, minimize the impacts of some of those pests and pathogens. And so one way to do that is actually create more diverse forests. So get away from this idea of monocultures. Um, and create like and, and a really by monoculture, uh, uh, 
Describe to our audience what right. you mean. So monoculture is just where you plant one species. So say so it's... Like a white pine plantation. Okay. So you go into the forest and you're like, oh, these trees are pines. Um, and so if there's a disease that comes in, so if white pine is susceptible to a disease, it's going to come in and remove everything. But if white pine only represents 5% of your forest, then it's fine. Even if the disease comes in, it's only affecting 5% of your forest. Mm-hmm. And there's actually studies that show that the disease has a harder time spreading when their host is only available at low numbers. So it also helps keep some of those pests and pathogens low. Um, so certainly making more diverse forests helps. And we're pretty lucky here in Southeast Ohio that most of our forests are pretty diverse mm-hmm. and we don't have to do much to keep them diverse. Um, but we certainly could be looking ahead to see what sort of species are projected to do better here. And then sort of either protecting them when we do our harvests. So when you're going into cut, selectively harvesting the species that maybe aren't going to do well under climate change and protecting the ones that are going to be doing better. I have, um, even though I live um, in what they call FINA, the Far East Neighborhood Association, right? Yep. Um, We have a large lot and we have lots of trees. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we've lived there since 89. Um, I have never had to deal with the number of acorns <laughs> that I have this year. Do you have a black oak? I Or a red oak? I need you to go okay. over and tell me. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, we have an um, entertainment deck with a hot tub and everything like that. Yeah. And... Is right outside the bedroom door, and you hear them hit the sh- the deck, yeah. and they're just constant. And I have literally, if in terms of bushels, um, this is not a young tree. I have probably collected five complete bushels full of acorns. Wow! Yeah. Yeah. So why why is it that it they're so prolific this year? Yeah. So. Um, oaks are a group of trees that basically do something called masting. So masting is defined as like a um, variable reproduction from year to year. So one year they're going to produce just a few acorns, the next year maybe a few more acorns, and then one year they're just going to produce, like you sort of noticed, just thousands and thousands of acorns. And it's going to be like hundreds of times greater Mm -hmm. than normal. Mm -hmm. And So a lot of species do this. It's called masting. And the idea is that it's evolved as a strategy um, to avoid being eaten. So these species produce nice big nuts that things like squirrels and deer love to eat. Yes, they do. So every year, you know, when they make just a little bit of acorn, all of those nuts will probably get eaten. But then one year that they produce thousands and thousands of seeds, it overwhelms the the animals. And so they can't eat all of the acorns. And so some of them escape from being eaten, and those are the ones that are going to germinate and turn into oak trees next year. So this strategy is actually pretty common in a lot of different types of plants. And so we've been looking at... So we shouldn't interpret it as the atmosphere is better this year. No, and so what's interesting, but it is weather. Um, So what's interesting about masting is it's a population-level phenomenon. So... If it's a good year in terms of a mast year, so they're producing lots of acorns for white oak, all the white oaks are doing it. It's not just one tree. 
And so it's a population level sort of increase in reproduction that year. Um, because if you imagine the strategies to overwhelm the animals, it only works if everybody agrees to do it, right? So if one tree just produces a lot of acorns, but nobody else does, none of the other trees, then all of the acorns will still get eaten. So it's done at a population level. So all of the oaks of that particular species are going to produce a lot of acorns this year. And the reason why I asked if it was black oak is because I have a long-term study that's been following um, acorn production in different species of oaks. And it looks like this year's a pretty good year for black oak. Well, you're welcome last to come year, over and yeah. <laughs> look it over. I say last year was a great year for white oak. Um, this is also a good year for beech. Um, it also appears to be a mass year for beech. So, but what's interesting is it is weather. So when you ask yourself how, how could all of the trees sort of know that this is the year that they're going to mass? Mm -hmm. And it happens fairly large, like across hundreds of kilometers. So the only thing really that connects across that, you know, across all the trees at that scale is weather. So we've been looking at what are the weather variables that influence if masting occurs. So for black oak, um, it appears to be spring frost. So if there's a late spring frost um, the year before, then this year will be a very small acorn crop. Um, so it is weather, and there is a connection to climate change, because if climate is changing, potentially some of those weather cues um, might change as well. So dynamic vegetation. Um, what is a dynamic vegetation model? Yeah, so that's the other main part of my research, is I do a lot of um, computer modeling. So there's different types of models out there. Um, and so a lot of them are, are called statistical models. So these are based on things that we've measured. And so we go out and we measure and we create a relationship between two variables. And so our statistical model can, you know, tell us, you know, how tree growth is influenced by um, temperature that year or something. Dynamic vegetation models are a little bit different in that they um, try to describe every single process from the ground up. So they try to describe what's the relationship between reproduction and climate, what's then the relationship between um, seedling establishment, or actually I guess then there's dispersal, like seed dispersal, and then establishment and germination, and then growth and survival, and ultimately what influences mortality. And we try to describe these relationships for as many species as we can, and then we put that into the model. And so we don't know what's exciting about dynamic vegetation models is we don't know the answer. Um, so we try to build this model from like first principles, like, you know, literally at the bottom, we put everything together and then we run the model and say, what happens if climate changes? And the model will sort of predict and show us what, you know, what changes in terms of establishment or what changes in terms of growth and mortality. And we can simulate, you know, 100 or 1,000 years into the future, and we get a sense for how climate impacts might impact um, forest growth and species composition. Well, you've lived here uh, nearly four years. Hardly enough time to have your yard converted to your favorites. That's true. But I would ask, you know, if it were 20 years from now, what trees would you have planted in in why 
Yeah, so I'm actually, that's a great question, that I'm planting trees now. So another thing that people can do to actually help with climate change is convert your lawns into um, either trees or like perennial vegetation and stop mowing your lawn. And so I am, I'm working hard actually on this, trying to plant as many trees as I can on my own property, which is not so huge. Um, so my favorite trees would be hickories. So pignut hickory and shagbark hickory. Um, I've also planted oak just because I like it. Um, and I'm hoping next year I want to plant more sweet gum. Mm -hmm. um, and why? So all of those species are actually predicted to do pretty well under the future here. And these are all sort of, some of them are more southern species or species that like a little bit more drought and a little bit warmer. And so those, will spe those species will do pretty well um, going into the future. And I also, I like them. Well, so, you know, we have five minutes remaining. What is your longer term goal in terms of career and and the influence you hope to have had on I guess our world and society? Uh, wow, that's that, a pretty deep, that's a isn't it? Deep question. It is. I think I mean ideally I do want to have an impact on how we manage our forests. Yes. I don't look at forests and think we need to like um like lock them up and, and don't go inside. I'm not. I don't. I actually believe we do need to to manage it. It is a resource, and I do think we sh we ought to be basically participating in that. Um, so it would be nice to have feel like I made a difference in terms of how we manage our forests. Um, potentially using models as a way to project management strategies. So looking at what's the best management for this particular area, mm -hmm. um, and if I if I you know. I think that would be, I think that would be a great legacy to to know that I made a difference in terms of managing resources and managing our forests and actually advising people who are doing the managing, so advising either private landowners or the state foresters, um, or the Forest Service about better ways to manage our resources, especially considering climate change and and what's going to be happening. If if you were to pick. Your next choice, besides forests, mm -hmm. what would it be? Can it still be plants or not even um, plants? Um, <laughs> well, I guess, okay, try plants first. If it was plants, I'd probably, so I started studying seed dispersal actually during my PhD, and I love seeds. And so by definition, that sort of puts you into the, what are called angiosperms or gymnosperms. These are plants that make seeds. Okay. But there's a whole group of plants that don't make seeds. Um, they, so these are things like your ferns. Yes. And mosses. Yes. And sometimes, so I teach a class at Ohio University um, about, like, the diversity of plants. And I, so I teach about ferns and mosses, and I think to myself, I don't pay enough attention to these guys. And they're very successful. They're all over the world. And they have a very different strategy. And so sometimes I think I'd go back and do sort of non, um, so vascular non-seeded plants. I see. So plants that don't make seeds. And with just two minutes left, is there something even more radically different? In other words, non-plants. Non-plants. That, that yeah. still holds your attention a lot. Ants. I a love ants. Ants. Yeah. So insects. Insects, yeah. I, I think after my undergraduate, I could have chosen plants or insects. And I chose plants, and I'm not upset about it. But I sometimes think I could have absolutely studied insects and been pretty happy with that, too. 
Rebecca Snell. I appreciate your coming in. Keep us, you know, come in once in a while and get us updated on things that, even though this has been going on for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, um, we still need to take action today to try to pre- to allow it to... Allow know, enough time to, yeah. I agree. We, it's it's something that we need to address today in order to actually see an effect in 20 or 30 years. You bet. Yeah. Thanks very much. Well, listen, it was a pleasure. And uh, like I said, let's keep in touch. Sure. All right. Rebecca Snell, who is um, an assistant professor at Ohio University's Department of Environmental and Plant Biology. All right. Let's see here. He's Chala handbags are taking the country by storm. If you like your handbag or purse to make a statement, a Chala key fob or coin purse, wallet, cell phone, X-body, mini crossbody purse, wallet, X-body, work tote, carry-all zip totes, and shoulder bags will be just the bag you need. They are decorated with critters. Birds, butterflies, dogs, cats, llamas, sloths, bears, and so much more. These handbags are fun and functional. They are great for gifts for that special someone or just to reward yourself. They are designed with just the right blend of whimsical, playful fashion while maintaining practical functionality. You can find a great selection of these bags at a work of heart in Grand Central Mall. Come see us today. That's a work of heart. Now across from American Eagle and next to Justice, Grand Central Mall, Vienna, West Virginia. When there's something strange lurking under your bed, who are you going to call? Dustbusters! Athens Dustbusters are a licensed, bonded, husband and wife team that offer up top-of-the-line janitorial services at great prices, and they serve commercial and residences across Southeast Ohio. As the seasons change, don't worry about the cleanup. Call Athens Dustbusters at 740-541-7113 for a free quote. But don't just take our word about the Athens Dustbusters. Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm John. And we're Athens Dustbusters, and we will bust your dust.
Yeah. Washington. CBS News Radio is your home for breaking news. With our team of reporters around the country and the world, we give you the coverage you can trust. Liberty Mutual Insurance Company presents. Lemu, I love how we're always looking out for each other. Kind of like how Liberty Mutual looks out for you by customizing your home insurance. So you only pay for what you need. Lemu, why didn't you tell me about the uncovered manhole? I was literally just telling you. Lemu, I had no idea you could swim. Liberty, 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 Liberty. Only pay for what you need at LibertyMutual.com. Temperatures will be topping out today at 68 degrees with sunshine and southwest wind at 2 to 5. Tonight, calm winds, 42 the overnight and low as clouds move in. It's cloudy for your Friday with a high of 64. And then rain showers move in on Saturday with 63 degrees high and a breeze in the evening. For 13 News, I'm Brian Hughes.
Follow along with Power 105 and 97 WATH on Facebook. Like our page for contests, prizes, community updates, and of course, some laughs. Check us out on Facebook at Power 105 WXTQ slash 97 WATH. And don't forget to click that like button. If you are between the ages of 5 and 8 years of age and always dreamed of what it would be like to play hockey, you must try the Blue Jackets Learn to Play program this November 7th. For only $115, your kid will be provided free brand new gear from head to toe as well as five weeks of training. The Blue Jackets are coming to Athens. This is an opportunity for your kids to try something new and learn the great sport of youth hockey. The time is now for you and your kids to experience the Blue Jackets coming to town in order to learn a new sport and the gear that comes with it. Register now at Blue 